What are the particular challenges facing the Church of England today in relation to godliness in the body? And how should it re- how, and how should it respond to them? Yeah, how yes, should... how should it respond to them? Yes, <laughs> right, now... <laughs> individuals in the Church of England today are facing a whole range of issues in relation to the, sh- the call to show godliness in the body. For instance, in many, if not all, congregations, there will be individuals for whom the issues of adultery, drunkenness, addiction to pornography, addiction to gambling, the use of abusive language, and tendency towards bullying or domestic violence are challenges which they have to face. That's just reality. And all congregations will have those sorts of realities. As parish ministers, if you are parish ministers, you will know about that. So that challenge doesn't go away. That challenge is a given and has to be tackled by appropriate pastoral care and pastoral discipline. But as a corporate institution, the Church of England is facing two particular challenges at the moment in relation to the cause show godliness in the body. Challenges are likely to become more acute over the next few years as it considers what to do in response to the living in love and faith material. And the first challenge has to do with gender transition. Here the challenge is whether the Church of England will continue down the path of saying that it is right for individuals who are biologically male or female to identify as members of the opposite sex or as having an alternative non-binary gender identity such as agender, bigender, gender fluid or polygender and for the Church to acknowledge these identities before God and its liturgy. The second challenge has to do with same-sex sexual relationships. Here the challenge is whether the Church of England will follow the path taken by other churches, including the number of other Anglican churches, such as most recently the church in Wales, by saying that same-sex sexual relationships can be acceptable in the eyes of God and therefore it is right to bless same-sex relationships or even to celebrate same-sex marriages. Now, in order to begin to think about how the Church of England should respond to these two challenges, we need to return to the issue of God's creation of human beings in his image and likeness, which we touched on in the answer to question one. And the reason we have to go back to that is that, as we've seen, God's act of redemption does not cancel creation, but rather enables creation to achieve its fulfilment. We are still what we were made to be, but God says you can now be that. Now, a central part of what it means to be created by God in his image and likeness is to be male or female. In the words of Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And this teaching is reiterated by Jesus in Matthew 19.4. Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? There is a very small percentage of people, some 0.018% of life births, approximately 1 in 500 people, who are genuinely intersex in the sense that they combine both male and female elements in their physiology to a greater or lesser extent. However, the existence of such people still points to the fundamentally dimorphic, that is male or female, nature of human sexuality. Whether, when they are able to reproduce, and that is often not the case, they do so as either male or female. They produce either sperm or, or, or eggs. Their condition is a de- developmental disorder rather than the existence of a third type of human being and is the exception that proves the rule. 
Because this is the case, except in these highly exceptional and biologically distinct cases, believing rightly in God the Father who hath made me and all the world, in the words of the prayer book catechism, means accepting with gratitude that I am the particular male or female human beings that God has created me to be and living accordingly. As O'Donovan writes in his book Begotten or Made, when God made mankind male and female to exist alongside each other and for each other, he gave a form that human sexuality should take and a good to which it should aspire. Neither of us can or should regard our difficulties with that form or with achieving that good as the norm of what our sexuality is to be. None of us should see our sexuality as mere self-expression and forget that we can express ourselves sexually only because we, are, we participate in this generic form and aspire to this generic good. We do not have to make a sexual form or posit a sexual good. We have to exist as well as we can within that sexual form and in relation to that sexual good which has been given to us because it has been given to humankind. This means that it is not legitimate either to deny the God-given form by rejecting the division of humanity into male and female or to deny the particular version of that form that God has given to us by making us either male or female, something that is determined not by our feelings, as many today would claim, but by our biology. As noted above, my body is me, and that means my biology is me. However difficult the form that God has given us may be for us to accept, and for some people it is incredibly difficult, to deny it would be sinful because it would involve refusing to say to God, Thy will be done, by refusing to love the self who God has made us to be. Now refusing in this way to say to God, Thy will be done, in either our thinking or our behaviour, is a very serious matter indeed because it brings with it the inescapable risk of eternal separation from God. As C.S. Lewis writes in his book The Great Divorce, there is an inescapable binary choice facing all human beings. He says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and thus those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. Lewis's point is that God has given human beings freedom to shape their own destinies. That is obviously within the sovereignty of God. We can choose to say to God, thy will be done, and be happy with God forever in the world to come. Or we can choose to turn our back on God. If we do this, God will respect our decision, but the inevitable consequence will be that in the world to come, we will be cut off from God and all good forever. The fundamental problem with both gender transition and same-sex relationships is that they do involve a rejection, in both theory and practice, of the sexuality which we have been given by God, and thus a failure to say to God, in practice, thy will be done. Now, in the case of gender transition, the issue is that people who are suffering from a deep discomfort with their sexual identity, the condition generically known as gender dysphoria, Refusing to accept the sexual identity of their body as a given and seeking to inhabit some other form of sexual identity instead. And by doing this, they act in a way that is incompatible with the biblical teaching that we should live in accordance with the sexual identity which God has given us by the creation of the particular bodies that we possess. 
decision to be found, for example, in Deuteronomy 22.5, which prohibits cross-dressing on the grounds that, as Peter Harland puts it, to dress after the manner of the opposite sex was to infringe the normal order of creation, which divided humanity into male and female. It can also be found in 1 Corinthians 11.2-16, where St. Paul tells the Corinthians that men should follow the dress and hair codes which proclaim them to be male, and women the codes which proclaim them to be female, because, in the words of Tom Wright in his commentary on this verse, God's creation needs humans to be fully, gloriously, and truly human, which means fully and truly male and female. Now, such teaching does not mean that Christians should uncritically embrace the gender stereotypes of any given society. For example, Christians were entirely right to say to the Chinese that binding little girls' feet is a really bad thing to do. What it does mean is that we should glorify God through our bodies by living in a way that proclaims to our society the truth of our good creation by God as male or female. We should be saying through our bodies, God in his wisdom and goodness has made me male or God has made me female. Now, engaging in gender transition is incompatible with this calling because it is necessarily involves refusing to accept and live out the truth of the male and female identity that God the Creator has given to us by deliberately adopting, instead, an artificially created alternate identity instead. And if you talk to people who work in that area, they will tell you whatever you do with hormones, whatever you do with surgery, that body is still biologically and therefore truthfully either male or female. You can hack it around all you like, but it will still be what it is. That's bru- that is the awful, brutal truth. And if you want to know about that, look at the t- what same-sex surgery actually involves. Now... To acknowledge this point is not to minimise the acute distress experienced by people with gender dysphoria. You wouldn't wish that on anybody. It is rather to give a theological account of what using gender transition to relieve this distress entails. The argument is often made that people who engage in gender transition cannot be said to be sinning since they are not deliberately choosing to go against God's will. They see that their identity they are seeking to live out as their true God-given identity, their authentic self, to quote Nancy Piercy and they simply desire to live according to this true identity. Now, this argument is true as an account of how the people involved view their situation. If you ask them, how would they describe their own situation, that's what they would say. I am seeking to live according to my authentic self. However, two further points need to be noted. First, we have to distinguish between how an individual subjectively views their identity and what is objectively true. To be male or female is a matter of biology. It is a matter of the body someone has been given by God and for which and in which they are called to glorify him. And this truth is unaffected by how someone views him or herself. This means that someone who is biologically male or female and who rejects his identity is in fact rejecting the sex that God has given them regardless of how they themselves view this matter. And the argument that is sometimes put forward, ah yes, but I have a male soul in a female body, or vice versa, fails to understand the point. The soul is, does not have a sex. The soul only has a sex insofar as it is attached to a body. It is the soul of that sexed body. Does everybody see that obvious point? The nature of the soul is that it can't have a sex. It's not material. 
Sex is something to do with the material body to which you are attached. Secondly, the fact that people with gender dysphoria have a distorted view of their situation, which then makes they then make the base of sinful actions, is not something which makes them unique. As a result of the fall, human beings have lost the ability to always see things as they truly are, the point made by Paul in Romans 1.21. Acts of sin, and whatever kind, occur when a distorted view of reality, resulting from the fall, leads to wrong desires, which in turn give birth to wrong actions. As Augustine argues in Book 14 of the City of God, our will is for our welfare. And this results in acts of sin, paradoxically, because misled in our thinking as a result of the fall, we commit sin to promote our welfare. Think of, think of the story of the fall. Eve commits sin to promote her welfare because the apple looks nice, it's desirable. She thinks it'll be good for her. That is what is involved in gender transition just as in all other forms of sin. Eve wanted the apple because she thought it would be for her good. People desire gender transition for the same reason. Now in the case of same-sex relationships, the rejection of sexual identity and hence the rejection of the body may appear to be less obvious, but it still exists. The point is that same-sex relationships involve either a man refusing to accept that as a man he was created by God to have sex with a woman, or a woman refusing to accept that as a woman she was created to have sex with a man. This does not, of course, mean that to be a man or a woman one has to have sex with a member of the opposite sex. Christ and John the Baptist were no less male and no less fully human beings for being celibate. What it does mean is that a man was created to have sex with a woman rather than a man and vice versa. To be a man is one who is potentially husband to a wife, father to a child and vice versa. To engage in same-sex sexual activity is to reject this God-given truth about human sexual identity. It's very similar to gender transition in that it rejects a core aspect of the duty to conform our lifestyle and our behaviour to the form of embodiment that God has given us. As O'Donovan has written, human beings are clearly ordered at the biological level towards heterosexual union as the human mode of procreation. It is not possible to negotiate this fact about our common humanity. It can only be either welcomed or resented. Now, to engage in same-sex activity is sinful because it involves translating resentment against the way we have been made by God into a form of activity which actively goes against the way God has made us to be. It involves saying, I will live in the way I want to live regardless of the way that God made me. This may not be what people consciously think they are doing, see the point made above, but it's what they are doing in practice. And this is the point that underlies the prohibition of sexual relationships between men in Leviticus 18.22 and 12.20.13. Like all the other sexual prohibitions in those two chapters, the prohibition of men having sex with other men reflects the teaching contained in Genesis 1 and 2 about how God created the world. According to this teaching, God created human beings as male and female, with men designed to have sexual relations with women within marriage and vice versa. Gay sex is an abomination in Leviticus because it involves a rejection by an individual of this key aspect of the created order. And you get that by simply looking at what Leviticus is, what Leviticus is making as a whole, which is how do you live within the boundaries of the created order that God has made. And this is also the point that Paul is making when he describes same-sex relationships as unnatural, paraphusin, in Romans 1.27. In line with other Jewish thinkers of his time, St. Paul thinks they are unnatural because they violate the heterosexual form of sexual activity God has created men and women to engage in, as shown in the way that their bodies are constructed. 
you read that in Philo, for instance, and Josephus and, and other people who make precisely the same point. Human bodies are constructed in a certain way. Acting against that construction is unnatural. For Paul, same-sex sexual activity is thus a rejection of human createdness, which parallels and points to the rejection of the creator through idolatry. That is why he cited as the first example of the consequences of idolatry in human behaviour. As Tom Wright puts it, the fact that such clear distortions of the creator's male plus female intention occur in the world indicates that the human race as a whole is guilty of a counter-twisting idolatry, rejecting the creator and rejecting our createdness go together. And of course, same-sex relationships, same-sex marriages are a further development of the basic area involved in all same-sex relationships. In terms of Christian theology, they too involve a failure to conform our sexual relationships to our God-given embodiment. Marriage is created by God as a sexual relationship between two people of the opposite sex, Genesis 2, 18-24. It follows that two men cannot enter into marriage with each other, and neither can two women. Same-sex marriages involve a denial of this truth. And finally, what all this means is that same-sex relationships, including same-sex marriages and gender transition, both involve a rejection of the necessary implications of the first article of the creed. You will have heard it said many times, oh, but this isn't a creedal issue. Boy, is it ever a creedal issue. People may still sincerely believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, but they refuse to truly accept or live out this belief in so far as it relates to the existence of the particular men and women whom God has created. As Martin Luther explains in his small catechism, the answer to the question of what it means to confess I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, is that I believe that God has created me and all that exists, that he has given me and still sustains my body and soul, all my limbs and senses, my reason and all the faculties of my mind. In other words, the Christian belief in God, the creator, is not just a vague deistic belief that God is the ultimate source of all that is, but the very specific belief testified to in Psalm 139 that God made me as the particular combination of body and soul that I am. Both same-sex relationships and gender transition involve in different ways a rejection of that same basic truth. They just involve ultimately a failure to say to God, thy will be done, and to glorify God in the body by living according to this truth. And this is previously noted, like all such sinful activity, carries the risk of eternal damnation. That is why Paul warns the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6.10 that those who persist in same-sex sexual activity will not inherit the kingdom of God. And because this is the case, from an orthodox Christian perspective, any church which supports same-sex relationships or gender transition is a church which is in serious error in its teaching and practice. It is giving support to forms of behaviour which involve serious moral error because they involve people departing from the way God created them to live. To put it simply, it's a church which which does not love people enough to seek to prevent them from living in ways which are contrary to the way God made them to live. Love does not simply mean affirming whatever choices people wish to make. It means seeking their ultimate good by helping them to understand what the right choices are and then choose them. A church which gives support to same-sex relationships or gender transition is failing to do this. It's not loving enough. And what this means for the Church of England as a corporate body is that it should cease to go down the path of accepting and affirming gender transition, the path that it started going down in 2017, 
and that he should say a firm and unequivocal no to same-sex blessings, same-sex marriages, and all other forms of support for same-sex sexual relationships. Just as Paul said a firm and unequivocal no to them in their first century. These are things that people have to put off, however painful that is, and it can be very painful. However, it's not just enough for the Church of England corporately and members of it individually to say simply say no in this way. They have to find a positive way to glorify God in their body by developing an appropriate pastoral response to those who are sexually attracted to those of the same sex or who struggle with their sexual identity. And this response, with which I close, needs to involve five elements, each of which is an aspect of glorifying God in the body. Firstly, Christians are called to treat all people with value and dignity, including everyone with gender dysphoria and same-sex attraction, as those created in God's image and likeness and for whom Christ died. Christ should also understand that this is not a, Christians should also understand that this is not a matter of them and us. It's not Christians over here and those bad people with same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria over there. There are Christians who find it difficult to accept the sex into which they are born, and there are Christians who experience sexual attraction to people of their own sex. Christians, B, should offer unconditional friendship and seek to understand the particular challenges faced in living in obedience to God in these areas. It is wrong to think that anyone is intrinsically less godly because the desires that they experience or the struggles they have about their sexual identity for the very simple reason that temptation is not the same thing as sin. (coughs) C, if anyone is not already living in accordance with God's will in these areas, Christians should be willing when the time is right to explain to them why the way that God and his goodness and wisdom has created the human race means that it is not right to have sex with people of the same sex or to reject the sex into which you were born. Now, obviously, that's not what you lead up on, lead up with. I remember a seminar at Wycliffe, and we asked Sean Doherty the question, what what would you say to someone who came to your church or came to see you about about these activities and you knew was the same sex attracted? He said the first thing he would say is, would you like a cup of tea? Now, actually, that's a very sensible first response. You get to know people, you build a relationship with them, and and that gives you the right and the opening to then talk about other matters. D, Christians should be willing to stand alongside those who are struggling in these areas and offer prayer, encouragement, and emotional, psychological, and practical support to help believers live in obedience to God. It is foolish and pastorally disastrous to expect that people with gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction, any more than anyone else, will achieve instant sanctification. For them, as for the rest of us, the path of mortification and vivification is likely to be an oscillating one involving regression as well as progress. Nevertheless, however long and however difficult the path that people have to travel may be, Christians have to be willing to walk it with them. We cannot give up on anybody any more than God gives up on us. And this is particularly important, though, is point D, because I was saying to Claire Hendry over lunch, uh, for those of you who have not seen it, go and look on, go Google the Ozan Foundation and conversion therapy. They have made a submission to the government's thinking about conversion therapy, which would say that it would be illegal, and I mean illegal, to do anything outlined in D. They said very nicely that you're free to preach what you like, but you cannot give directive support or even directive prayer to anybody which would encourage them either to change their sexual behaviour or to suppress their sexual feelings. That's, that's what they want to do. 
they want to blank out D. And that we, we need to be aware of this fact. There is a real fight going on. And finally, E, out of love for individual concern to protect the godliness of the church as a whole, Christians should also challenge and, where necessary, discipline in accordance with Christ's teaching in Matthew 18 and, uh, 1, and Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 5, that those who are professing Christians but who claim that they do not live, need to live in accordance with God's will in these areas. And, arguably, no one should be ordained who is not living in the ways that offer a wholesome pattern and example to the church and to the wider world. And, of course, this last point does not mean that those who are same-sex attracted or struggle with their sexual identity should not be ordained. But it does mean that they should not be ordained unless they accept the truth about what constitutes godly living and live accordingly. And that's exactly the same criteria that one would apply to all other candidates for ministry. This is not discrimination. It is saying, applying to a particular set of people, the rules that apply to everybody. Can you show that you can provide a wholesome pattern and example to the people of God and to the world.